Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm Kim Chiboldo, Executive Chair of the Cancer Support Community. For more than 35 years, we at the Cancer Support Community have been a relentless ally for anyone impacted by cancer. We help individuals manage the realities of this disruptive disease and get back to normal. Whether accessing our free services in person at one of our 175 locations, online or over our toll-free helpline, you are getting a team of licensed professionals providing patient navigation, financial counseling, genetic counseling, pediatric support, and more. Today's show is part of our special series, Young and Diagnosed, which focuses on the unique challenges and experiences of young adults facing a cancer diagnosis. In each episode, you'll meet inspiring young people who will share their stories and insights with honesty and candor. Young and Diagnosed is brought to you by Genentech. Our guests today are Suleika Jawad and Jonathan Summers, two cancer survivors and advocates. Together, we will explore the difficult places, physical, emotional, logistical, where many young adults suddenly find themselves when their lives are interrupted by the devastating news of a cancer diagnosis. For Suleika Jawad, cancer revealed its presence in strange and unexpected ways, an unusual symptom, a fleeting sense that something was not quite right. It began with an itch, she tells us in her memoir. And with that mysterious statement, we join her as she descends into what became a three and a half year journey through what she refers to as the kingdom of the sick. It began with an itch, not a metaphorical itch to travel the world or some quarter-life crisis, but a literal, physical itch. A maddening, claw-at-your-skin-keep-you-up-at-night itch that surfaced during my senior year of college, first on the tops of my feet and then moving up my calves and thighs. I tried to resist scratching, but the itch was relentless spreading across the surface of my skin like a thousand invisible mosquito bites. Without realizing what I was doing, my hand began meandering down my legs, my nails raking my jeans in search of relief before burrowing under the hem to sink directly into flesh. I itched during my part-time job at the campus film lab. I itched under the big wooden desk of my library carol. I itched while dancing with friends on the beer-slicked floors of basement tap rooms. I itched while I slept. A scree of oozing nicks, thick scabs, and fresh scars soon marred my legs as if they had been beaten with rose thistles, bloody harbingers of a mounting struggle taking place inside of me. Bloody harbingers indeed. In time, Suleika and her family would know just how tough that struggle would be. But before the diagnosis that split her life into before and after, she was a young woman with dreams for the future, becoming a war correspondent, living in Paris, creating a life. But the itch, which had been diagnosed in turn as a parasite, eczema, or stress-related, persisted and was soon accompanied by bone-crushing fatigue shortness of breath, and other symptoms that led her to think not of cancer, I mean, who gets cancer in her 20s, but that she might be losing her mind. It felt like an unraveling. 
She saw doctor after doctor, endured test after test, all the while trying to make the most of her time working in Paris after graduating from college. But no one, she says, seemed to take her or her symptoms seriously. I remember the first time a doctor noticed I was a little anemic. He told me that this was perfectly common in young women and sent me home with iron supplements, um, which, you know, probably was, you know, a safe assumption given that up until that point I had been an otherwise healthy young person. Um, but I think the more troubling aspect of those months of misdiagnosis was that I kept returning to the same clinic and each time I would see a different nurse or a different doctor. And I think if someone had taken a step back and actually looked at all of these different appointments and all of these different symptoms I was having, I could have gotten my actual di diagnosis far sooner rather than just kind of fixing the problem at hand. No one connected the dots until, tragically, it was almost too late. Essentially what happened is I ended up in the emergency room and a doctor there told me that my red blood cell counts were low, so low in fact, that if they dropped any lower, uh, I wouldn't be able to get on a plane and to fly home. So within 24 hours, I left my job. Uh, I left my apartment, which, you know, I didn't realize it at the time, but I would never return to. And Suleika found herself on a plane heading to upstate New York, to her family home, where her life took an unthinkable turn. So my initial diagnosis is acute myeloid leukemia and further biopsy results showed that I actually had myelodysplastic syndrome, which is often called pre-leukemia. And I had likely had it for a long time, which explained the slow onslaught of these symptoms. That began with an itch. But because of the myelodysplastic syndrome, uh, I learned that not only was I going to need to undergo chemotherapy, but that my only shot at a cure would be a bone marrow transplant. And at that point, the extent of my knowledge of bone marrow came from like French and Italian cuisine, but I quickly learned that the best potential donor match is a sibling, even though a sibling match only happens, I believe 25% of the time. As Suleika learned, Cancer doesn't just affect the patient. And so what that meant was that my brother at the time who was studying abroad had to fly home immediately to undergo a battery of tests. And I think for me, that was, you know, a very vivid first indication of the way that cancer not only affects a patient, but it affects an entire family, an entire community. Um, and it was my first indication that um, this disease wasn't just happening to me, but that it was going to affect and upend all of our lives. For Suleika and her brother Adam, it was literally a matter of life and death. I think he felt an immense amount of pressure as my donor. He actually confided to my mom 
that he felt like if the transplant didn't work and I didn't survive, it would be his fault somehow. And I know, you know, the experience of being a sibling to a cancer patient is one that we don't talk about a lot, but it's really difficult. All the focus is on the sibling who's sick. And there's this way in which, you know, siblings can kind of get lost in the shadows. But my brother brought his humor even to the experience of cancer, which I loved so much. And very early on, he coined a nickname for me, which was Sulekemia. Um, and he, you know, only a brother can get away with calling you Sulekemia. <laughs> because she was too sick to live on her own, Suleika had returned to her childhood bedroom, which only heightened her feelings of isolation and dislocation. So yeah, I found myself in my childhood bedroom, which at first felt profoundly frustrating. I had spent, you know, my 22 years on the planet preparing for a life, working hard in college to be able to get a good job and to travel and to do all of these things that I'd always dreamed of doing. And the last place in the world that I wanted to be was back home. But as I got sicker, I felt an immense amount of gratitude to my entire family and, you know, to my dad, whose insurance, you know, uh, I was still on, and to my mom, who essentially made caregiving her full-time job, and to my brother, of course, uh, who quite literally saved my life as my donor. But that first summer was difficult. I was angry. I... You know, I was at an age, and this was happening at a time where Instagram had just taken off, and it was frustrating to see photos of my friends going to parties and, you know, starting their careers and traveling the world and all the other big and small milestones of early adulthood while I was profoundly stuck and profoundly isolated. Suleika had hoped to become a war correspondent never dreaming that the war she'd be covering was the one taking place in her own body. Her prognosis was grim and the treatment was grueling. Three and a half years of chemotherapy, a bone marrow transplant, and many, many emergency trips to the hospital. Although in the beginning, she had no idea what was to come. I think in those you know, early weeks when I first entered the hospital, I had these ambitious ideas of what I was going to do during this time of illness. I brought with me to the hospital a big stack of books. I thought I was gonna learn new skills. Um, I started learning how to knit with the help of a hospital volunteer. Um, but the kind of early adrenaline and naivete about what this experience was actually going to be like quickly wore off. Everything felt like a struggle. It was a struggle to eat. It was a struggle to walk. It was a struggle to breathe. And for a long time, it seemed impossible to imagine what it was that I could do from my hospital bed other than just being a patient. There were setbacks and excruciating side effects. At one point, she thought she was done with chemo, only to learn the treatment had been extended another nine months. You know, I think there's this way in which you can survive as long as you see an end date in sight. 
Um, but when the goalposts keep moving, there's a real weariness that sets in where you start to think like, is this ever going to end? And that was certainly true for me. It's one thing, you know, it was one thing for me to kind of rally my resolve um, for a summer. It was quite another thing to figure out how to endure the ongoingness of illness and the possibility that it might be omnipresent in my life forever. As a young adult with cancer, Suleika was caught between two worlds, doubly isolated by her illness and her age. She called herself oncology's tween queen, unable to relate to pediatrics or with patients several decades older. At a time when she was eager to define herself and chart her own course, her life was abruptly interrupted. I think the in-betweenness of young adulthood is something that applies whether you're sick or you're not, because there's this way in which, you know, of course, on paper, you are an adult. But at least for me, like, I didn't have a savings account yet. I was still on my dad's health insurance plan. I didn't have a family of my own. And I think that introduces a very um, specific set of challenges, both from a treatment and diagnostic perspective, but also when you emerge out of treatment because you don't have like a firmly established life to return to. You don't have necessarily a career that you can skip back to. And so I think for me, I struggled with finding my footing, not just as a patient surrounded by many patients I couldn't always relate to, but as a human who was trying to figure out, you know, who I was and what I wanted to do with my life and also kind of grappling with the fear that my life was over before it had really begun. In the course of her treatment, Suleika discovered through Google that a side effect of her life-saving chemo and bone marrow transplant was infertility and early menopause. And while she had not given a lot of thought to children before then... Yeah, the most thought I'd ever given to becoming a mother was how specifically not to become one, at least until I was ready. And she was not prepared to have this choice forever taken from her. I felt this kind of wrenching sense of foreclosure. And I didn't even know, I still don't know if I want to have children but I knew that preserving that option for my future self felt important. And it felt like a kind of lifeline to what seemed like a pretty uncertain future. Yet it was at this moment that Suleika decided to take a more proactive role in her own self-care. You know, even if that was the case, I wanted to be a part of that conversation. I wanted any kind of decisions involving my body to be something I had an active role in. And in the end, to their credit, you know, they not only agreed to delay chemo, they helped me secure a grant to cover the cost of the egg freezing process. But I think it was a big lesson 
in understanding that no matter how brilliant and compassionate my medical team was, I was going to have to take an active role in my care and I was going to need to learn how to advocate for myself. There were other discoveries during this journey through cancer and beyond. Suleika unexpectedly found a supportive community with what she called her cancer crew, other young people in treatment. There are about five of us and they're all in their 20s dealing with different kinds of cancer, all in a kind of more prolonged treatment regimen. And we became each other's support system. We would accompany each other to chemo. We would, you know, show up with takeout when someone got bad news. We would answer the phone in the middle of the night when the anxiety attack struck. And for me, you know, having a set of people who I could speak to freely about the experience of illness was so crucial to making it through that. You know, as wonderful as my family was, as wonderful as like my healthy friends were, there was just this way in which they couldn't understand certain things, or I didn't feel like I could talk about certain things for fear of worrying them or upsetting them. By advocating for herself and later for others, Suleika found a voice and inner strength she did not know she had. Although she had always been a writer, she now shared her words with a wider audience, starting with what became the award-winning series of essays in the New York Times, Life Interrupted. So I launched Life Interrupted from my hospital room in the bone marrow transplant unit at Sloan Kettering. Um, as well as an accompanying accompanying video series, um, which I'd wanted to do because I knew how challenging it could be to read when you're not well. And I wanted the project to be as accessible as possible. Um, But the biggest thing I wanted to do was to write something from the trenches because a lot of the kind of cancer books and narratives I'd stumbled across told that story from the vantage point of someone who had survived. And it's very different when you're on the other side of something than when you're still living it and you don't know how your story is going to end. The column was a lifeline. Her doctors had told her that she had about a 35% chance of surviving the transplant. And the act of writing gave her a platform to talk about difficult truths like sexual health and all the other experiences she had had in her uniquely personal combat zone. I wrote about, you know, all kinds of topics. And I think that's the power of storytelling. It's the power of truth is that when you speak it, when you write it, it inevitably becomes a form of advocacy. After three and a half years, Suleika emerged from treatment. She was 27, had recently gone through a breakup, and lost many friends to the disease. She was lost. And although she was pronounced cured, she was a long way from feeling healed. She needed to do something to figure out how to start living again. But I didn't have a rite of passage, so I decided to create one for myself. And what I ended up doing was deciding to go on a 15,000 mile road trip to 33 states and to visit 22 people, most of them strangers who had written me letters in response to the column and who I felt might be able to offer some insight 
and some guidance. But before I did any of that, I had to learn how to do one crucial thing, which was to figure out how to drive and to pass my driver's license. And I was camping in between these different stops on my road trip and very quickly realized I hadn't actually gone camping since I was 10 years old. Um, <laughs> and so that was its own learning curve. But really, you know, what I wanted to do and, and the reason I, I set out on this road trip is that after spending so much time living with cancer and dependent on caregivers, my world had narrowed pretty dramatically. Um, I didn't feel safe in my own body. I didn't know how to navigate the world. In fact, you know, the world outside of the hospital had come to feel frightening and foreign to me. Um, and so I wanted to do a couple of things. I wanted to kind of thrust myself back out into the world because I knew that if I didn't, I might kind of stay in that small cramped bubble. Um, I also knew I needed to learn how to uh, kind of stand on my own two feet and how to be alone. And the third thing I needed to do was I needed to process so much of what had happened that I honestly hadn't had the bandwidth to do while I was sick. I was, you know, focused on survival. And lastly, you know, what I realized is there's a very big difference between surviving and living. And I wanted to figure out what living meant for me. The start of that new life is told in Suleika's new book, Between Two Kingdoms, a memoir of a life interrupted. The New York Times bestseller chronicles in vivid detail the course of her illness and treatment and her adventures on the road with her rescue dog, Oscar. She chose the title as a tribute to writer and philosopher Susan Sontag. Between Two Kingdoms is um, a reference to the brilliant Susan Sontag, who talked about how we all have dual citizenship in the kingdom of the sick and the well, and how it's only a matter of time until we use our passport uh, to the other place. And the kingdom of the sick, I think, is not something anyone really thinks about until either you end up there or someone you love ends up there. And at first, you know, I very much resisted that dual citizenship. When I got my diagnosis, I didn't think of myself as a cancer patient. I refused to call myself that. I, you know, hoped for a kind of short time in this land, maybe like a mini, I wouldn't call it a vacation, but a mini stay. Um, and I believed that I could, you know, hold on to the person I'd been, even if, you know, some part of me already knew that wasn't possible. But of course, that didn't happen. And as time passed and as I grew sicker, I realized not only that I was gonna stay in the kingdom of the sick for a long time, but that it was likely that I would never leave. And so I kind of built a home for myself there. But eventually she did rejoin the kingdom of the well. Fast forward to the year 2020, and we find Suleika seeing the parallels between her experience with cancer and the COVID-19 pandemic. Once more, she has turned to writing, this time to help us all process the experience. So as everyone kind of went into isolation um, almost exactly or a little under a year ago last March, it all felt weirdly familiar to me. 
the face masks, you know, the sanitizing of like every object that anyone touches, the experience of being sequestered at home. And I started to think about how I might bring the thing that had helped me while I was in isolation, which is writing and journaling to a bigger community. And so that's how the Isolation Journals was born. It began as a reprise of the 100 Day Project. And we sent out free journaling prompts every day from a different contributor. Um, And we've had an incredible array of artists and musicians and frontline workers. Uh, We even had a prompt from a six-year-old cancer patient named Lou Sullivan that wrote probably my favorite prompt um, ever. But it was this really powerful project where people got to process in real time. They got to kind of see how writing is a way to, you know, convert isolation into a creative, into a kind of creative solitude, even if it's just fleeting. And by the end of those hundred days, we had over a hundred thousand participants. So because COVID is ongoing um, and because, you know, we've come to realize that isolation is a feature of of modern life that, you know, predated the pandemic. And that's all the more sort of intensified now. We've kept putting up these prompts and and building this community. For Suleika, the isolation that comes with COVID is familiar. She knows how to deal with it. For me, on the one hand, in some ways it felt easier than maybe for people who had never experienced isolation before. Like I remember thinking, oh, like this, I know how to do. I know how to hunker down. I know, you know, I've, I've learned over the years of being in treatment how to kind of try to stay grounded and connected and inspired even when I can't see people face to face. Yet even with that experience, she, like many other cancer patients and survivors, has found living through COVID challenging. It kind of kick-started that sense of hypervigilance that so many cancer patients have where you're you know, hyper aware of your vulnerability, of your body's fragility. And that's been difficult and it's been, you know, heartbreaking to see so many people suffering and see friends of mine who have gotten sick or even died. I was trying to think about it, not end it on such a depressing note. (laughs) Today, Suleika is working on a number of projects. And while she still struggles with some of the lingering effects of the transplant, she is moving forward. So that cancer patient is part of who I am. It will always be a part of who I am. But strangely, in kind of accepting that, it's made space for other new parts of myself to emerge. I have a little wooden desk uh, that I use uh, to work from bed. And I've just kind of learned to accept that I may never fully feel well and not actively sick. But that the truth is that most of us live somewhere between those two kingdoms. That was best-selling author and cancer survivor Suleika Jawad. Her book is called Between Two Kingdoms, A Memoir of a Life Interrupted, and is available wherever books are sold. We've got to take a short break, but don't go away because we'll be meeting testicular cancer survivor and advocate Jonathan Summers after the break. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer, and today's episode is brought to you by Genentech. 
Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help, and many of the people in their lives want to help but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Meal Train sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit Mealtrain.com slash MMT and enter the code MagnoliaB or visit us at cancersupportcommunity.org. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the healthcare process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Cancer, it's a lonely word terms I don't understand, choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer, created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer.
Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm your host, Kim Tebaldo, Executive Chair of the Cancer Support Community. Today's episode is part of our special series, Young and Diagnosed, and brought to you by Genentech. Today, we're hearing from young adults whose lives were abruptly upended when they were diagnosed with cancer. If our next guest, Jonathan Summers, were making a biopic of his own life, it's unlikely he would have chosen cancer as a desirable plot point. Yet it was a diagnosis of testicular cancer that inspired the young screenwriter to become the man he is today, a passionate advocate for adolescents and young adults struggling with many of the same issues he faced in his late 20s. Our story begins nine years ago in Los Angeles. So I was 27. I moved to Los Angeles to pursue a career as a screenwriter. And uh, I was kind of making my way, working at various studios or being an assistant. And then um, one of the things that my mentor told me to do was uh, whatever I really love, like what my hobby is, get involved with that. I, I played lacrosse my whole life. I played high school, college, and I started coaching. Um, that's what I always did on the weekend for fun. And I was 27 and I had a kidney stone. And like most 27-year-olds, I did nothing about it. And it just turned out that one of the kid's fathers on the lacrosse team is a urologist. And uh, I asked him to take a look at the ultrasound. And uh, and that's when Jonathan's life took a turn he never saw coming. Uh, I'll never forget it. It was, uh, it was a Thursday. I left work and wanted to be back by noon because that's when uh, we get free lunch. So I really wanted to be back by noon. So uh, I have the appointment, we're discussing, um, you know, the kidney stone and what's going to happen. And I remember I felt something on my testicle, but it's, it's nothing. So let's not really mention it. And uh, here I am about to leave. I have my hand on the door and I said, oh, by the way, I forgot something. It's probably nothing. And he said, let me look. Uh, he did a physical exam and uh, it was nothing. It was, you know, it's probably a zit, you know, or whatever, you know, assist, probably assist. But it turned out to be much more serious than a cyst. And um, he rushes me over then to get an ultrasound. And I'm, I'm like, guys, can you hurry up? I got to get back by noon. I want this lunch, right? <laughs> and uh, and all of a sudden, he comes into the room uh, with the technician, and he's watching the ultrasound. And that doesn't seem right. You know, when I, I had an ultrasound for my kidney stone, no one was just a technician. No doctor was there. And uh, then we went back into uh, into the office and uh, he asked me to sit down and he got on my eye level and uh, he said, Jonathan, it appears that you have testicular cancer. I have to say, you know that scene in Saving Private Ryan when, when Tom Hanks is on the beach and everything's blowing up and he's just looking around, it's all slow motion. And, and he said, Jonathan, do you hear me? And I was what? You have cancer. Yeah. And uh, I wasn't going to make it back for lunch in time. In an instant, the carefree young man on the cusp of figuring out who he was and what he wanted out of life was forced to make some very important life or death decisions. Then all of a sudden this bomb hit and everything changed. All of a sudden, what I had planned, my path stopped. The trajectory was like, uh-uh, not going to happen. And... That was a hard thing to wrap my head around. It takes a while for young adults to, to realize that. Things he took for granted, like his independence, were no longer a sure thing. His first challenge, telling his parents. 
And my family does this thing where if it's serious, you ask, you know, both parents to come on the phone at the same time. That's how you know. And I told my parents that uh, I have cancer and, and the shriek, this absolute shriek my mom let out. And my father didn't know this, but he didn't hang up the phone. And, and I heard him say, that's the worst phone call I've ever received. Then he broke the news he was not coming back to their home in Connecticut. He was staying in L.A. This guilt just suddenly came over me. So my father uh, runs medical laboratories and he was trained at Yale. And we have a lot of friends at Yale, doctors. And he said, you're coming back to New Haven. And that, that really hurt me because my life is here in L.A. You know, all my friends are here. And March in Connecticut, that's cold. <laughs> you know, <laughs> L.A., March, that's nice. Jonathan was lucky. He had connections and resources. A friend contacted Mark Litwin, who was head of urology at UCLA and the doctor who ultimately directed his care. Still, the pace and complexity of decision-making was dizzying. He felt totally out of his depth. I get a phone call at four o'clock on a Friday and I'm exhausted and uh, I'm being hit with a bombardment of options. Doctors are talking about you need blood work, you need tumor markers, you need ultrasounds, you need CT scans, you need an MRI. And it was just too much for the mind. It, it was, how am I supposed to know about cancer? I, I only took high school chemistry. I didn't go to med school. Um, how am I supposed to know any of this? And I'm by myself. And wait, what is in-network versus out-of-network? And yes. am I going to miss work? These are all questions no 27-year-old expects to have to face and for which Jonathan had, at that point, no clear answers. But then there was more. Wait, 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 wait. Now you're telling me I have to worry about, re like, fertility? What? How could this possibly impact my fertility? The day after his diagnosis, he met Dr. Litwin for the very first time. So I get this phone call from UCLA and they asked me to come uh, for an appointment at 6 p.m. Dr. Mark Litwin is... Uh, driving up to see you. And I'm like, what? You gotta be kidding me. And you know oh. LA traffic on a Friday. Don't want to deal with it. So I'm pulling into uh, UCLA, Frank Clark Urology, and I get a phone call. Uh, Mr. Summers, you're booked for surgery Monday morning. And that's when denial mixed with anger, mixed with fear. I, I, I was livid. How dare you? I didn't, I didn't commit to you. How dare you? This is my body. Uh, how do you know I even need surgery? And, do I even have cancer? Are you sure? I mean, I was just told yesterday, it could be a mistake. Might be a mistake. Hopefully it's a mistake. I pray to God it's a mistake. I, I go into the office, I meet Dr. Litwin, and uh, first thing I said, not even hello, I just said, are you the one to book surgery? And he said, slow down. <laughs> he took me into uh, the office and sat down, looked me in the eye, and, and I'll never forget this. And then we come to a plot twist. And he said, uh, Jonathan, I want you to know two things. You have cancer and you will live. And mm. I know this because I'm a testicular cancer survivor mm. and I dedicated my career to helping men like you. I just started bawling and he held me like a baby and, and, and consoled me. And, um, and I threw out questions that young adults care about. Like, am I gonna be bald? Do yes. I need chemo? How long is this going to take? And, and, you know, it's rattling them off, not even listening to the answers. And he said, slow down. And, and then I asked him, did you book this surgery? He said, I booked it because as the department head, 
you know, I have some leeway in who gets surgery at what time. And based on your numbers and your report, you're, I thought you would be a good candidate and I would rather be proactive in, in your treatment. That Monday, three days after that fateful diagnosis, Jonathan underwent surgery to remove both the lump and the testicle where it was found. If there's a hero in this story, it's Dr. Litwin, whose bedside manner, kindness, and expertise made Jonathan feel like he was treated like a person, not a disease. That relationship defined my successful treatment. Um, what he did that I am so thankful for is he welcomed the opinions of others. <clears throat> so even I had, uh, there are many different types of testicular cancer. So after the surgery um, where they removed my testicle, they, they looked at the tumor um, and uh, for the type that I had, they weren't sure if it spread. There was a chance it did spread and there was a chance it didn't. But to know for sure, Jonathan could either watch and wait, meaning surveillance and regular follow-ups, or he could take immediate action and choose. A chemo and a surgery uh, called uh, retroperitoneal lymph node dissection. It was not an easy decision, but in the end, after consultation with a therapist and more heart-to-heart -heart conversations with Dr. Litwin, Jonathan went the surgical route. I'm not gonna sugarcoat it. It is a very invasive surgery. Finding a doctor, um, it's very important to find one who has, if this procedure is being considered, and for any procedure that matter, you wanna know how many times this doctor has done this procedure. You know, if it's one or two, you may wanna find someone else. Yeah. Jonathan's recovery was tough both emotionally and physically. So I was in the hospital after that um, procedure for about four or five days. And that was not fun. Um, you know, leading up to it, one thing I really wanted was to connect with others who have been through it. Uh, I felt like I was drowning and I wanted a life raft for someone to say, hey, I've been there. This is what it's like. This is what you could expect. Jonathan, a young and fit lacrosse player and newbie surfer, did not expect such a challenging recovery. The NG tube is not fun. That is terrible. I, I just wanted to get through it. I, I, I was so over it. And um, so I was in the hospital and uh, I came home and it took me a good, I would say month for physical uh, rehabilitation. Uh, I didn't work out for until about two, three months. I didn't feel myself until about six months after. In addition to the physical challenges, Jonathan felt emotional ones. I did experience feelings of depression. Mm -hmm. I did experience feeling of isolation. I was certain I was the only 27-year-old who gets cancer. Like mm -hmm. the young kids get cancer. I've seen that on TV. Right. Old people get cancer, but not me. Not, not like... 27 year olds, you know, yes. it's not, this isn't part of my plan, by the way, <laughs> you know, I'm yes. supposed to be getting married right now. I'm supposed to be doing all these things, not having cancer. And I was mad. Um, I was sad. I, I, all these feelings came up. Jonathan wasn't the only one dealing with emotional fallout. While he was close with his family, their relationship was tested in ways they were not prepared for. There's a tremendous sense of guilt because my parents wanted to be there, but they were working and they had to get off work to fly to California. And, and they spent a couple of weeks here and, and you could actually feel how, 
how much it was hurting them. And, and that hurts you. And with my brother, you know, for, for any caregiver, but for my brother, they both loved me so much and they didn't want to see me hurting. And if they could push a button, if they could switch places with me, I know they would, but they couldn't. I had to go through it. And I think that was something that was rather hard for them. And it kind of caused a bit of a riff for us, you know, because they wanted me to quickly be better, you know, get right back to life. But I wasn't ready to get right back to life. There were a lot of things that physical issues from surgery, issues with uh, my work, issues just with life. Cancer also strained relationships with some of his friends while others surprised him with their unexpected compassion and generosity. Those years, AYA is 15 and 39. I mean, they're hard enough. Your first job, your first relationship, college, a cancer diagnosis makes it that much harder. A lot of friends that you expected to show up didn't just because they didn't know how to talk to me about it. And then people you didn't expect to show up out of nowhere just showed up. And uh, for instance, that, uh, lacrosse community and the families that I coach, they brought me meals. You know, they put together a fundraiser event um, to help me pay for my medical bills. Um, I did not expect that at all. And it was just so much love. And, and, and I'm so grateful for that. For Jonathan, these moments of connection and community were welcome because in his day-to-day experiences as a young adult with cancer, he felt caught between two worlds, out of place in both, unseen and lost. So AYA, right? Adolescent young adults, 15 to 39 years old. There's more than 70,000 of us diagnosed a year, 70,000. We're kind of lost in these worlds. We're forgotten and it is, it's troubling. And only as of recently are there, you know, fellowship programs for AYA, but it is very, so very important that we start acknowledging that these patients are caught in between these two worlds, not just from a clinical treatment aspect, uh, but also from the psychosocial point. Uh, I like to say that, you know, we may, we don't want to go to a place as Elmo on the wall, but we may want uh, you know, a cot next to our bed so our partner or our mom or our dad can stay there. And, and um, it's difficult because you feel one lost as a person because you're the only young adult you know that's going through this. And then the medical system makes you feel even more isolated that way. So uh, my answer is connecting. The more that we could connect with each other, the easier it becomes for AYA patients. Jonathan believes one of the ways to make it easier for young adult patients to be heard is to talk frankly and compassionately with them about the difficult decisions they will have to make. In his case, that meant talking about fertility, an issue he admits he wasn't really able to wrap his head around early in his diagnosis. I I hope everyone, whether they're, especially AYA, uh, are this frank with their their doctors because... um, it is that important. And I, there was a chance that I wouldn't be able to ha- conceive a child naturally due to this, this treatment. So um, even on the first day when I was told that I had testicular cancer, I was told I will need to bank sperm. Um, I did not think about that at the time. It was just way too much. 
But before all of, uh, before I had the major cancer surgery, I did have to do that. And that, I had mixed emotions about it. I mean, thinking back on it, I, I was angry. Um, one, it is not covered by insurance. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that was surprising to me. And it's not cheap. Thankfully for men, there, uh, and, and for women too, there are programs that can help. Uh, however, for women, uh, harvesting their eggs is extremely expensive. So I um, had to bank my sperm and, and knowing how, you know, I want to know every detail. So I even went to the sperm bank place before because I wanted to know, like, what's going on here? What happens? And uh, I just didn't feel comfortable. And I, I asked my doctor and asked the, uh, the people who work there, why do I have to do it in this kind of you know, sterile room? So I asked, could I do this at home? Um, and they said, uh, sure, you know, just have it to us by two hours. And, and some of the advocacy work I do, there, there are couples who ask like, why, why can't it be with your wife or, you know, or whoever, your husband, whatever it may be, right. Why does it have to be defined in this very clinical setting? And the point is to treat your patients like a person. That need for connection, a community to help others feel less alone and lost is a priority for Jonathan now. Uh, I remember waking up from this very large surgery and I made a promise that if I get through this, I'm going to help someone else. And I didn't know what it was going to be or how. No idea. I just knew I would. Jonathan has made good on his promise, turning to the medium he knows best, filmmaking, to reach and educate the AYA community about clinical trials and other critical issues. As a peer counselor, he encourages young patients to take a more proactive role in their own care, speak up, and ask the hard questions. You need to ask, is there a clinical trial? You need to ask what support uh, options are out there, such as, you know, the cancer support community. You need to ask your doctor, if I was your son, if I was your daughter, what would you do? You need to ask your doctor, Is there a second opinion you would recommend? About this, Jonathan is adamant. Ask for a second opinion. Ask for a third opinion. Do not feel rushed into making any decision. Remember, this is your body. This is your treatment. You know, remember that you will get through this. One way or another, you will. Jonathan did get through this and has been cancer-free for over nine years. Hearing the news was especially sweet for him and for his mom. I have to say the the best feeling was 10 days after my surgery, when I was home and getting that phone call, you're cancer-free. My mother is a cancer survivor and she was with me. And the tears that flew from from our faces. It was the middle of the day, I'll never forget, we went to... uh, this is a hotel overlooking the ocean had a glass of champagne and we cheers each other as, you know, two cancer survivors. And that was probably one of the best feelings. The only feeling that came close to that was five years when I was officially done. He was done with his cancer, but not yet over it. He had survived the disease, but not the trauma. COVID brought it all back again. The randomness, the forced isolation, the fear. So, you know, almost... Almost a year ago now, when COVID kind of was, you know, we, first part of our lexicon, when, when it first was in the news and people were dying for 
for cancer patients or survivors, especially the AYA survivors that I spoke to, it was really, really scary for us. And, and the reason being is, I right, was thinking about cancer. You didn't expect it, right? No one expected COVID. It came out of nowhere. Um, what you know about COVID is people are dying and you don't know why or how or how they got it. Well, well at least in the beginning, we didn't know how, how they got it. But um, the same thing with cancer. Like, how, how did I get testicular cancer? And, and am I going to die? That's really the first question. Am, am, am I going to die? That's what it comes down to. And when COVID happened and we were told to stay home and many of us are at risk, um, you know, we have weaker immune systems sometimes because of treatment. And, and should we contract COVID, it may be more deadly for, for us. We just need to be careful. And it just became very scary. Um, I know a lot of, you know, friends, uh, a lot of my AYA friends explained how it felt like they were going through cancer again. It was this traumatic event that came up. It was absolutely a PTSD experience. COVID was certainly a trigger, a big one, but there had been others. For me, I, I, for a while, did not like to pass by the hospital where I was treated. It just brought bad memories. And should I need an appointment at the hospital, I wouldn't go near the urology department. I, I would use a different entrance to the hospital. One thing that helped me to get over the, the trauma was once I was healthy, um, I told my therapist that I think it would be helpful if I visited the room where, where I stayed for those five days. And you know, when I was discharged, they wheeled me out in a wheelchair. And I didn't have any power. I, I was pushed out. So Jonathan rewrote the script. This time I went back to the room with my therapist. Um, she set it up, it was great. Um, and I spent about five to 10 minutes in the room and, and remembering um, what happened. But this time I'm healthy. This time I knew I was over cancer. And this time I walked out in my own power. And I can't begin to tell you how helpful that was in my healing process. And he walked into the future on his own terms. This time I'm healthy. This time I beat cancer. And now I can walk into what's gonna happen in my life in the future. I don't need to be pushed. This time I'm ready to move on. That was Jonathan Summers. His latest project is called Cancer Brief, a SWOG digital engagement committee project aimed to raise awareness of cancer clinical trials due out later this year. Thank you for joining me today for this special episode of Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Kim Tibaldo, executive chair of the Cancer Support Community. As mentioned earlier in the show, the Cancer Support Community provides a multitude of in-person, online and telephonic support. For more information about our programs, visit us at www.cancersupportcommunity.org or call us at 888-793-9355. Until next time, be well, do well, live well. Mm -hmm.